Welcome to the Digital Families Podcast. I'm Leonie Smith, sometimes known as the Cyber Safety Lady. I'm a cyber safety educator, and this podcast is all about learning how to use the digital technology in our homes with more safety and balance. My guest today is Professor Stacey Steinberg. Professor Stacey Steinberg is a professor at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. Professor Steinberg's research is about a parent's right to share online and a child's right to privacy. She is also a mum and a photographer. She has a passion for taking photographs and started to wonder how her doing so could impact the digital footprints of her kids and the many children she photographed over the years. Her research led her to the conclusion that parents need to protect their children's digital privacy, but that families also benefit by sharing online. Professor Steinberg has just released a book titled Growing Up Shared about her research in the field of parents sharing about their children's online. Professor Steinberg, welcome to the Digital Families Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Just tell us a little bit about your background, what led you to being involved in this research, which um, occurred over a number of years by the look of it, um, around parents sharing about their kids online. Sure. So I graduated from law school in 2003, and I became a prosecutor and found my way to the Special Victims Unit. And so I was handling cases involving uh, crimes against children, uh, family violence, um, and sexual violence. And part of my work was also involved in the, I worked with the uh, folks who were um, investigating child pornography. And so when I left the state attorney's office and went to child welfare, I continued to do work on um, looking out for the best interest of children. Um, and at um, about three years after leaving the state attorney's office, I had an opportunity to start teaching at the law school. And I really, um, I found that I loved teaching, but I also loved the research aspect of being a law professor. And I focused my research on the intersection of where a parent's right to share and talk about their children online end and a child's right to privacy begins. And I, I thought about that a lot, not just because of my background in law and child welfare, but also because I love taking pictures and um, somewhat of a photographer. And of course, I'm also a mom, I have three kids and um, I really loved sharing the experience of motherhood on social media, but I worried about how my doing so could negatively impact my children. So there's a personal reason there. And it took you about five years, is that correct, for this research? Yes. Um, it started probably in about 2014, 2015. I started to question if all the sharing that I was doing online possibly mm. um, implicated my children's privacy. Um, you know, when my first son was born before social media, and I remember when we got a, a blog and documented a lot about his early life, Um, At a certain point, I realized that um, those stories really weren't mine to share. I wish I realized it sooner, I guess, uh, because the internet never forgets, even when you do delete things. Um, But uh, I started to really question how that intersection played out. And so I was taking a lot of pictures. I was also writing for the Washington Post, and I really tried to 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 see if there was a better way for parents to share their experiences and their stories while also protecting their children's digital footprints. Yeah, it's such a complex area. And reading through your book, it was really interesting to see 
the changes that have happened over um, the years since social media came in. But one of the things that I got from your book was a lot of the positive aspects that have come from um, social media and parents being able to share about those experiences. Can you just sort of outline what are some of the positive, the really positive si sides of the ability to share on social media that you found through your research? So the, the most positive benefits probably had less to do with me and more to do with um, my friends and my community. Uh, as a photographer, I focused a lot of energy on photographing families who um, had children going through really difficult medical circumstances where um, the town I live in has a, a wonderful pediatric hospital. And I offered free photography to families um, that had kids going through cancer treatments. I worked with an organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep that photographs um, stillbirth and um, when babies are passing away, offers a photography service to those families to be able to have some memories. Um, and the families who I photographed really benefited from having those pictures and also from sharing them. I took a lot of pictures of uh, uh, older children and teens who were able to stay connected with family and friends through social media groups where they, um, where they would share information about their medical journey um, and receive um, both emotional support and at times financial support. So, so those were some of the most um, impactful pictures that, um, that I saw online that really helped people. But I also think that we've gone through really a transformation as, as a society where we understand, I mean, maybe not, we're nowhere near where we need to be, but we understand our neighbors better because of social media. And so when things like, um, like same-sex marriage became an issue here in the States, I think that people who were brave and bold enough to share their own stories online and be brave and vulnerable online were able to help bridge connections between other people. And I think that those connections don't just end with adults, but also end with when we connect as, as parents with our kids. Of course, with every disclosure that's told, it takes one more piece of the child's story away from that child from being able mm. to share it. And so it's constantly a balancing mm. of how parents and families and society can benefit, but at what cost? Yeah, one of the things that you brought up in the book was um, um, particularly mothers sharing in groups. And one of the reasons that I got involved in the internet back in um, 1996, which is a long time ago, was that I had a very premature baby. Mm -hmm. And I went down to my local library to find any information that I could, because in those days there were no support groups for mothers mm -hmm. of, of premature babies, which seems strange now, but there was nothing in, in Australia, nothing at all. So um, I went down to the local library and I found one tiny little book that was like a brochure on premature babies. And at, at around that time, about a year before, we'd had, we got a, a personal computer at home and I was the one that was tasked with setting it up and I just fell in love with the whole internet thing in 1995. And I found an online parent support group that was based out of the United States called Preemie L. And I'm, I'm feeling emotional about it now as I'm talking to you about it. There wasn't, it wasn't based in Australia, it was based in the States. And even though there were very different aspects of healthcare and stuff around premature babies back in 1996 when my son was born, I got so much comfort and out of that parent support group that it led me 
to being very heavily involved in parent support groups from that time forward. In fact, helping to, to set up a parent support group later on for all sorts of other reasons. And it became my internet journey because of that. Yeah. And, and now when I see all these parent support groups on Facebook, I just think, oh my goodness, if, imagine if that had been a reality for me at that stage. And you also found that through, through your research, the amazing support that, um, that within that within that group that parents are getting. Yeah, you know, I think that um, that the example you gave and that you've gone through is, I think, a universal experience of many parents on social media, maybe not with the story and the experience that you had, but by finding support online. And you really mm. found it early on and it was- I know, it was a forum. There was before yeah, social media, there was, there was no MySpace, or it was on a forum. <laughs> And how lucky you were that you had the skills oh, to, you know, and that the, you had the technology and the ability to go and find that forum. And now yeah. it's accessible by so many. And, um, mm -hmm. and I have many friends who have benefited from those support groups and I benefited from them myself. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, it's difficult because we, those groups also give us a sense of security. And in some ways the forums from the nineties, I feel like were, a little bit more anonymous than the social Oh, I was social about to say that. It's group, so different. You know? we, it was just common that we had usernames and no one was known by their real name. We had a really big sense of privacy back in the 90s. Um, so everybody had a username and some people actually changed their real names over to their online usernames and kept them. By Depol, they changed them because they were more known by their online internet username than they were their real name. So that if something went wrong in a forum also, um, you were held accountable to that. You used the same username everywhere you went. And if you behaved badly in a forum and you were banned, there was almost no way of getting back in again because to get a new email address and to create a new online identity was so much harder in those days that although I ended up moderating forums and having to deal with all kinds of issues that happened within those, those forums, um, it was a much safer space and you were anonymous and people couldn't link back up to a real line identity, which leads me to my next question about that comes up in your book, which is about the moderation of these forums, how some parent forums can be so toxic and that it's a huge job for these moderators to, to monitor the forums. It is. And, and most of those moderators forums groups, these are volunteers. These are people who felt that maybe they got something out of the group or they see that other people can get something out of the group. And it can be very difficult to moderate and to know what is a pro acceptable and what is not in the group and also how to set boundaries. You know, if the moderator knows about child safety and knows about what types of information parents should avoid sharing or you know, it, it, it's a responsibility and it can also be a lot of work for those moderators to be able to, to do so effectively. Yeah, um, because we've seen where it's gone wrong. There have been cases over here in Australia where people have shared something in, in a parent form, forum that they think is perfectly acceptable and then all of a sudden being hugely shamed, parent shamed within that forum for whatever it is that they've shared. Sure. Yeah, it's, um, it's concerning and and difficult because we want parents to be able to benefit from the support from the community. Um, but our infrastructure isn't really set up to do so in, in, a, in a smooth way. Um, there were some groups that I found that did um, encourage parents to share more anonymously, um, which is always um, mm. a good option. Um, but it's, it's piecemealed, you know, 
it, it might be piecemealed differently than it was in the 90s, but it's still piecemealed in some ways. And there's really very little professional oversight on the groups. Yeah, and that's the thing. If you're getting parents sharing um, professional advice, <laughs> what should be professional advice within these groups, um, when they're talking about their parenting, that can be a dangerous thing as well. So um, one of the big issues that came up in your book was also about what parents are sharing and how that the, particularly the images that they're sharing of their children and how that's being used by online predators, for instance. Um, and I mean, there was a, there was a famous episode of Pink sharing nude photos of her children on Instagram that went absolutely viral around the world. And she ended up shutting down her account. Um, do you see that that's still an ongoing problem that a lot of parents are, are sharing, they're oversharing to a point of that, that it can be dangerous for them? Are we learning? Are we, are we getting better at this? Um, I think that. I think maybe we're learning, but at the same time, the risk is also growing. We're learning more about the ways that criminals take advantage of the information and the pictures that we share. Um, it's an area that I wish there was more research on. And here in the States, I'm often relying on research from Australia um, or from Canada, from, uh, from the UK, um, as to the frequency of a lot of these pedophile image sharing sites. I know there was an article in, um, in one of your major newspapers that talked about that 50% of all images on pedophile image sharing sites had originated on family blogs and social media. And these weren't sexualized images of children, but images that pedophiles uh, took mm. off of parents' uh, blogs and shared those images. And I, you know, I, one of the most difficult things that I find when I'm talking about these risks is that we know that no matter how often it occurs for anyone that it happens to, the, the, the impact is horrible. We don't know the prevalence. Um, at least we don't have any, any new figures or facts that I've been able to find to really back up how these images are being shared or how frequently they are. Um, thankfully, there are some international agencies like your e-safety commissioner that seems to be um, at the forefront of doing a lot of this work. But here mm. in the States, I feel like it's lagging in some ways. Um, I, I've done some work on um, the issue of deep fakes or morph child pornography. Mm. And I, found that I've, I found that really interesting because in your book, what you've done is you pose some questions in some parent groups that, you, that you're a part of about what parents' fears are about sharing their pictures. And overwhelmingly, the parents said, I never share pictures of my, of my children in swimming costumes or naked, so therefore I'm safe. And what you've pointed out in your book is, no, you're not. Right. Yeah. The, the, the risk is that the images could be morphed. And we, you know, we hear about deep fakes in the context of adults, revenge porn or, or celebrities, but that same issue is an issue when it comes to children. Um, when I used to be a prosecutor um, and we would um, handle child pornography cases, a piece of what we did was the images would be run against the known image database so that um, in essence, the law enforcement could figure out who the victim was, the victim could get restitution. Um, and also the statute required that the image actually be of, of, of a real person, a real child. And so the known image database would help to be able to build the cases. Nowadays, we don't always have known images because some of the images are fake. And so what I, um, what I, what I really tried to think about is um, 
or not, I don't know if think about is the right word, but what really bothered me and stuck with me, I guess, is more that what I would say is that kids might not be harmed in the creation of those images, but they're certainly harmed by their circulation and by the fact that they come into existence. And so laws need to be updated to not require that these images be of known children, because a lot of them are morphed images, but that any image where a, a, that is stolen, especially any image that is stolen and used in a sexualized way, that the perpetrators need, need to be held accountable. And I think that in the states, at least, some state laws have not caught up with technology. And so um, some state laws do not um, prohibit that. Our federal laws do, though, thankfully. Yes, it's a it's a really uh, strange area because you could have a lot of child um, abuse images being passed around that are completely created from from scratch, and that's a whole other area. Um, and the other thing that um, I heard over here when I when I've been listening to our police talking about it is that it. The images don't have to be sexualized at all. That a great portion of images that are found on pedophiles' uh, databases are non-sexual images, just of, of kids. And one of the other things that interested me in your book was parents basically saying, some parents saying, I don't know about it, so it's not going to hurt me and my family. If these pedophiles are actually stealing photos of my child and passing them around for whatever reason, as long as I don't know about it and my kids don't know about it, how does it harm us? What do, what do you say to that? I think it can still harm your child in ways that we haven't even figured out. You know, I, the, the risks of online sharing and sharing thing don't end with what the research today tells us. I think that the images can resurface in many different ways. Search engines are changing constantly and mm. the way that we are able to connect images of people, even if they're morphed with the original victim, is only going to, um, to be amplified. Also, we know from studies that, um, that uh, people who harm children often use images of other children being harmed to, um, uh, to groom future victims. And so any image that is being used or is being created, it, it's creating a market for something that's illicit and wrong and can hurt kids generally. But um, kind of separating it and just keeping it with what could it harm that specific child, I think that there are ways that those images could come back and re be reflective of the child, even though the child never took part in those images, you know, creation, dissemination, um, or use. Well, also with facial facial recognition, yes. um, it's very easy to, re to reverse um, image search on Google and find those images in all kinds of places. And of course, people have already done that where they've found um, sexual abuse images of themselves where they've been um, photoshopped or whatever and their face is there and that's how they've discovered how their photos have been used. Exactly. The reverse image search from Google is really um, shocking and powerful when we see where memes end up. You know, there was a picture a few years ago of a naked toddler who had who was chubby and that there was a caption on this picture that said when you overeat at the holidays or when you overdo it on the holidays and it was people were sharing it thinking it was cute it was like the backside of the child and the smile, you know, smiling but that's a real mm -hmm. child that's someone's real image and that parent may or may not have even known that their child became a meme let alone a, a mm -hmm. meme that was of a naked child and when you do a reverse google search of that image it's shown up hundreds, if not thousands of times. And so the ability to kind of get that back is really limited. 
Yeah, there's another case like that that was very famous about a grumpy child, a little girl that was on a swing that looked really grumpy and her parents had shared it with privacy settings on. They didn't have very many friends and all of a sudden, over a weekend when they were away, it turned to a massive viral meme and they Mm -hmm. tried to take it all back and, and stop it from happening. And they found out that one of their friends, someone that they trusted, um, made it into a meme uh, without asking them and thought it was funny and cute and it just completely lost control. Mm-hmm. So even with privacy settings set up within your um, your own group, there's no guarantee that any image you shared amongst so-called friends won't end up being misused in some way. Right. Right. And and so what's difficult is we don't have research to know how often it happens. We know about the extreme cases that make it yeah. into the news. And so what's difficult for parents to do is to balance that risk that we have a hard time quantifying with mm. the benefits that they feel that they get from sharing and staying connected with friends and family. When I started yeah. doing this work, I thought that I would walk away never wanting to share again. <laughs> but I do enjoy being connected to people. I do enjoy um, um, being able to to talk to to see pictures of my cousins who live far away, or um, you know, being able to you know get advice in this the different groups that I might be a part of. Um, so it's it's hard to kind of say all or nothing. And I I think one of the ways that I've kind of dealt with that in my own life is that I've started to recognize that my social media feed. Um, is really a family account. And so I need to protect and steward my children's digital footprints, but I can also use it almost as a training ground for them for that when they become um, social media users themselves. And so um, involving them in conversations about what we share, why we share it, how do we, how often do we invite technology into our lives? Um, and so the, the accounts become less of my social media account and more of a family account. And the other interesting thing in your book, there's lots of interesting things in your book, <laughs> Stacey, um, was the discussion that I've had also with, with uh, my family about parents sharing so much about their kids that there's no surprises anymore. Um, I can remember once meeting um, a very famous person at, at a party, and this is what this is very similar and it was before social media times this person was so famous that i knew almost everything about that person and then when i met them face to face i couldn't have a normal conversation with that person because i couldn't say so where are you from and what do you do and all the normal things you would say because it was all over our our local magazines over here and you found that is also a problem with social media where people are sharing or sharing things and sometimes it may not be you it may be a family member great news you know about births or marriages or whatever it might be to the point where when people are meeting face to face they're they're all it's very awkward when they already know all these things about and episodes and things that are happening in people's lives that you would normally use that time to catch up on yeah there there's um a friend of mine that i interviewed in the book said you know how am i supposed to am i supposed to pretend i don't know all this information that you've posted you know asking how was your day seems kind of forced and fake um i had a, a friend after i wrote the book that i was talking to about this and she said that you know she finds that going out for coffee with a friend has lost its luster in a lot of ways because you used to go out for coffee and catch up and really hear how things are going 
but yeah. that one-on-one face-to-face catch-up time, it, it's, you know, it, it's really changed so much because of all the information that has been shared, like, like you had said. Um, and I think that's also confusing for our kids. You know, I think that when our, if our kids don't know what we're posting online and someone comes up to them and says, oh, I mm. hear you hit a home run and you got, you know, I hear you got into X school and, you know, I love that artwork that you drew. Unless that child knows that the parent had shared it, that could lead to some really strange feeling mm. of awkwardness with the child and maybe some some privacy boundaries, stranger danger boundaries that, that we're not quite so used to. So I, I think it's important to think about how do we disclose information about ourselves? What do we want our face-to-face conversations to be like? And how and and what do we want our kids to think when they run into people who have read all this information about them online already? Um, so we need to keep some stuff back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's mean so that you have to. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it's not, it does. It doesn't mean that you need to pre- present. Uh, a sort of Instagram version of your life, which a lot of people do actually, they do keep stuff back. So it can look like they're living the perfect life and nothing is wrong. And then when they are face to face, all the all the, the dark stuff comes out. Um, but we do need to be aware of that. You mentioned some examples in the book of, you know, for instance, a, um, a father-in-law who shared about the, the birth of his, his grandchild before the parents even had a chance to tell people. Yeah. Um, so it's about being careful about that sort of stuff. Now, the other really important part of this book is about the data. And you go into a fair bit of detail about how our children's data is being used online as well, from them being online and also their parents being online. So their digital footprint starts from the moment a parent starts sharing about perhaps the birth of the child and all the way through. How is that being used by the big social media companies um, Stacey, what did you find out about um, the uh, the downside and the upside of that, the data sharing? So, you know, we are becoming more and more aware of how big, big, uh, big data, how third parties are collecting information about us. We have conversations and we see information about it on our newsfeed. We do a search on Google and we see ads for it on social media. It's really overwhelming when we think that the same thing could be happening with our kids. And so every piece of information that we share is creating a digital dossier of sorts on our kids. And that can be used in many different ways. Um, some of the more benign ways might be targeted advertising. Some of the ways that could harm them that, you know, that that could be perfectly legal might be, you know, help create it, figuring out if they're a good risk for a loan or should a college admit them or is this a good job opportunity? Should they should they should a job hire them, or even insurance like health insurance? Does this child have a history of being sick a lot? All of this information could be used in ways that we can predict now, but also in ways that we can't even predict yet, years into the future. You know, I think um, right, right around the time the book came out, I was listening to Danny Shapiro's podcast. Um, uh, called Family Secrets. And she talks a lot about how like 30 years ago, we didn't have the DNA test that we have now. And so what was a secret in a family 30 years ago is no longer mm. a secret because the DNA gives it away. It's We didn't have a language for 23andMe back then. We, we had no idea that this would be possible that for $50, you could find out all of your, you know, all these secrets that your you, your grandparents never expected you to know. So what I really worry about with the data that we're sharing is 
those risks that I can imagine right now, um, the data theft, the ch uh, risks of pedophiles stealing our kids' pictures, the third-party collection, but I worry equally about the risks that I can't predict because I don't have the language for it yet, the things that we haven't even considered yet because it's, it's just things are moving so quickly and the way that we share um, is not going anywhere. Once it's out, it's out. Um, we get so comfortable with our privacy settings too sometimes that we forget that social media sites are known for data breaches. You know, there was um, on Facebook, everything that you had share, anyone had shared for, with the only me setting for a few hours or a few days became public. And so mm -hmm. there is opportunity for that information to be stolen. Um, just because you think you know who the audience might be, it could be very different. Um, and and it's overwhelming because unlike other risks involving kids and childhood, we have very little that we can do to control once the information's out there. The power that we have is to never put it out in the first place. That's exactly right. If it's not up there, it can't be hacked. That's what I'm going yeah. to have written on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, one of the things that I tell parents in my talks actually is to consider archiving or deleting your old history so and that I've done that on Facebook ever since I joined in I think it was late 2006 I joined Facebook I don't yeah. have um, if somebody would hack into my account they wouldn't see any history that Facebook would know probably everything that I posted but I've always done that because I don't I basically don't trust them I guess I've just been I've seen too much yeah. <laughs> online and you talk about that in the book as well as, as going through um, even if you if you feel it's overwhelming I mean my personal not my professional opinion is that these platforms like Instagram and Facebook need to make it a lot easier for us to do a history delete in the same way as we can do on browsers where we can delete all our history we should be able to um, even if you you can now filter certain things out in in Facebook where you can look for all kinds of things like maybe it's all the things you've been tagged in or whatever it is but you still have to go through step by step and delete every second every single one and I believe that's probably to prevent people from having the ability to do that because while all those posts likes shares and everything are up there that's useful to Facebook so you know, would you recommend the same thing in your book? You say, you know, go back, have a look at your posts, even if it's just once a year and make sure that everything that up there is something that you're happy for a complete stranger to be able to look at if that ever happened in your account got breached. Absolutely. I think that doing those cleanups are really critical. Um, and I, I also think that um, Facebook changes what it allows you to do very frequently. And so mm. what I have found is that there have been weeks or months that I have had more, I, like there was, I don't know if it still is this way right now, but two months ago, there was a, an, a very easy way to click a button and download all your pictures at once to your hard drive or download mm. all of your pictures at once to a Google uh, photo album. That wasn't around the month before, and I don't think we should just assume that it's going to be around a month from now. And so I think that we have to recognize that their policies are changing, sometimes to our advantage, but often to our disadvantage. Um, and so I think cleaning up and removing pictures regularly is really important. Um, a lot of people like the Facebook memories um, feature. You know, that's a great way to go through and see what you posted and, you know, 2008 and delete it now. I mean, you don't need that information out there. And mm. you know, the, the 
the information is just growing and growing. For you and I, our social media, our internet presence is defined by what we put out about ourselves or decisions that we made or things that happened to us as adults. Our kids don't have that benefit. Mm. You know, they'll reach adulthood with a digital footprint not of their own making. And if we can try to, to, to shrink that a little bit, we'll be doing our kids a, a big favor. Yeah, and, and one of my questions around that is that you point out in, in the book that we need to start asking permission of our children. And it's one of the things that I say in my talks to everyone, adults and kids, we need to start asking permission of anyone before we take a photo or a video of them. Because the first thing you think when someone's holding a phone up in your face is where is that going to go? It's not just a case of them having that picture, but where is that going to go? And it needs to be a social norm. But my question to you, Stacey, is when kids are really little and they don't have the um, life experience to really understand what, where that's going, they, they're not in a position to give informed consent anyway. Um, with parents, you had a question on your, one of your parent groups where you said, what, at what age should you start asking children's permission to share things? But there's a power imbalance there as well, Stacey. So how do you really get consent from a child to say, I want to share this picture of you? That's a great question. And, and it's something that I've struggled with um, since writing the book. I think that when I, when I wrote it, the veto power piece, asking your kids and giving them veto power. I, I, I felt I was on solid footing, but since then I've really started to, to think about that idea of the informed consent piece and the power and balance. And, and I think that if I were to give the advice again, it would probably be a little bit different. I think veto power is important, but we have to learn how to hear our kids, not just by the words that they say, but we have to take the, how they would feel about it now how they're going to feel about it years into the future and really try to equalize that a little bit. Um, my, my day job isn't writing. I, I run a law clinic where we represent kids in the foster care system. Um, I, alongside my students, we are the attorney ad litems for the children. And what that means is that we don't act as their best interest lawyers, but we act as their voice in court for exactly what they say. We're like their microphone and we help make whatever they wanna see happen a reality and we try to argue their point. And what I talk to my students about is that we have to think about what our, for our youngest kids, you know, our five-year-olds or six-year-olds who aren't necessarily able to verbalize what it is that they want, we have to think about what will they, at 15, what will they have wanted at five? Not what's necessarily best for them at 15, but what do they want? And really trying to get down to how is this possibly going to affect our kids and mm. err on the side of caution of not mm. sharing. Um, unless we feel that, that this is something they can be comfortable with. It's also really awkward, and this is something I didn't cover in my book because my youngest wasn't old enough for me to have learned this yet. You know, one of the, the challenges of being um, a social media, of writing about social media and parenting is that I'm still living the experiment. I mean, I have <laughs> kids. I pray that the way that I'm doing things works out, but, but yeah. I don't know yet. I'm, you know, I'm a work in progress and the kids are works in progress. Yeah. And with my youngest, what I learned after writing the book is that it's harmful for her for me simply to even ask her the question of, do you want mm. me to share it or not? Mm. And so while like for my, my middle child, he's a, he's a competitive gymnast and he loves things being shared. And, you know, I think that for him, that the, the way that I share, I get to use it almost as like a training ground so that he can see why certain things I'm not going to share and yeah. certain things he wants to share. He can with my daughter. I really try not to even ask her because 
it gives her, I think that she's just uncomfortable with the idea that so much of childhood is being documented. And if I'm with her, okay. she just wants to be present with me. And so we yeah. really have to learn our kids um, and, and, and not just listen for their answer, but really watch their behavior and, um, and take their whole being into account when we think about- And, are be, they really more, and be more present rather than yeah. taking photos yeah, being more of present. everything, just being more present with them. So, mm -hmm. Stacey, we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, and I could keep talking to you for a long time because it's such a complex area. And I really appreciate your honesty with everything that you're saying, because <laughs> no, none of us are perfect. I look back on some of the things that I that I did with my kids on on computers even before social media, um, and you learn as you go along. But if you were to give parents some really good tips on sharing and how to share with safety and with uh, keeping in mind all of those things that we covered so that you've still got wonderful news that you can share face-to-face -face with people that your kids at some point in their futures might end up working in a, a position. It might be a government position. It could be um, any a high-profile position where they want to turn around to you and say, mom or dad, I need all that stuff taken down, that you can do that. What are your top tips for parents taking My all of this into account? <laughs> Good question. Wow. So my top tips for parents, I think, would would first to accept the nuance that this is a this is a, a challenging conversation. This is a conversation with a lot of moving parts. And it's worth engaging in the research and engaging in deep discussion with your family members, with folks in your life that um, that also value having these rich discussions about parenting and become as well-informed as possible. I always say that parents don't overshare because they're trying to be malicious. They just haven't yet considered the importance of their child's digital footprint. And I would encourage parents to see the importance of their child's digital footprint and recognize that until our kids are old enough to be able to shepherd their own footprint and be in charge of their own online identity, the person responsible or the people responsible for protecting those online identities are us, their parents. Um, the, there are three questions that I would recommend that parents who want to keep sharing ask. And these are the three questions that I always try to ask when I share. The first is, is it dangerous? Is it possible that this information could end up in dangerous hands? Um, is it something that someone might want to steal? Is it something that create, could create a digital dossier that, doesn't, that, that could harm my child? The first one is, is it dangerous? The second one, is, is it embarrassing? Could it cause my child any sort of emotional harm? Think about how will my child feel seeing this now, but also how will my child feel about seeing this years into the future? And it goes to a great point that you made about, will you be able to take it down later? You know, How will my child feel at 25 if you say, sorry, I did it and there's nothing I can do about it now? It's a really different conversation than saying, sorry, I did it and let me fix it. And then the third question is, is it helpful? I think it's important that parents identify, is this something that I'm sharing because it helps me as a parent? Does it help my family? Does it help my community? And that kind of brings us full circle to the point that you made at the beginning when you shared about the groups that you were a part of in the 90s. That there is sharing that is very helpful. And when parents are more well-informed, when parents are more well-connected, they benefit and my parents benefiting their children benefit. So I think that it's really critical that when we have these conversations of, is it harmful? Is it embarrassing? 
we also think about is it helpful and we acknowledge that that's an that oftentimes is an important reason to stay connected that, that's wonderful advice and use your privacy settings even if you <laughs> even if they're a little bit haphazard um, yes. be careful who you share with and be judicious about the, the, your friends like who, who's in your friend group and and as you said in the book use those the ability in Facebook for instance to have close friends to have acquaintances and all those sorts of things that are available in the technology Stacy thank you so much I know it's um, getting to bedtime over there in uh, in Florida where you are stay safe um, I hope things are, are, are going to improve for you over there I know you're in in a in a, in crazy situation over there in the US at the moment. Um, where can people get your book, Growing Up Shared? So I believe it's available uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold. So um, any of the online retailers that you like to frequent, you can find it there. Um, you can also go to my website for direct links. It's Stacey, S-T-A-C-E-Y, Steinberg, S-T-E-I-N-B-E-R-G.com. I'm also on Twitter at S-G Steinberg, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Digital Families podcast. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review. We haven't got enough reviews up there. Um, or leave us some feedback on the YouTube channel or your favorite podcasting app, whatever you're listening to this on. I love to hear what you think. Maybe you've got a suggestion for another fantastic guest um, on the show. And tune in again next week for our next chat about all things digital and how it affects families. Thank you. <music>